Hebrews 4. We're going to be reading from verses 14 through 16. We are in the middle of our series on Hebrews. So let's hear God's word together. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. And yet, without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is living and it is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. But thank you for your word that brings great encouragement and hope. Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes that we might see that we have a great high priest. Father, I pray that you would give us confidence, not in ourselves, but in you. And that we would come boldly before your throne to receive mercy and grace. This morning, Father, I'm aware that I need your mercy. Mercy for all of my past failings and sins and weaknesses. God, I need your grace. I need your grace for speaking. Lord, we need your grace for hearing your word. God, make your word alive. Be merciful to us. Be gracious to us. Give us eyes to see your truth and ears to hear from you. Give us hearts that respond. In Jesus' name, amen. We've all heard of the bad dream that commonly occurs to children. Many of you may have had the bad dream when you were kids. Maybe you didn't, but you know somebody who's had a dream like it. But no matter what, almost everybody can identify with the fear of being in front of your class and speaking and only having your underwear on. It's a, it's a, it's a terrifying dream. It's, it's disconcerting. It, it, it's uncomfortable. It's unnerving. You wake up and like, oh my goodness, I'm whew, glad that didn't really happen. It's disconcerting, but it's still pretty far-fetched. I, I doubt this ever happened to anybody in this room. Um, I'm, I'm actually pretty sure it's never happened to anybody in this room. You accidentally went to school, middle school, and you show up and, oh my gosh, I forgot my clothes. <laughs> no, middle schoolers are far too concerned about appearances and, and fearing man. But what if, what if there was another shared fear? So that's, that's odd that we all have that shared fear. Lots of people have that shared common fear. It's, it's not a fear that comes true. But what if we all had shared fears that were true, whether we are aware of them or not? What if we had something that either of us have faced or from time to time will face that's a very real fear? I'm not talking about the fear of public speaking, which apparently is the number one fear of all adults in the U.S. Uh, the top ten fears, that always hits number one. I, I can't figure that one out. I can think of other things that would be much more terrifying. Spiders, for instance. You know, those... I, I, don't like, I don't like big spiders. They, have, they think too much. It's, but what if there was a real fear? <laughs> something that we should fear. Something that we have in common. Common, in fact, to all of humanity. That all of us are going to face at some point and at some time. Some of you maybe have been freed from this fear. 
while others are still trapped in fear. The fear that I'm talking about, it's, it's that fear that we touched on last week, that, that fear of being completely naked and exposed before the eyes of God, to whom we must give account. You see, we, we all have to at some point in time face that fear. It's a reality. We, scripture told us in, in Hebrews last week that we all are naked and exposed, not a stitch on. We are completely exposed, completely exposed before the eyes of God. And then here's the fearful thing to whom we must give account. If you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope, that's a true fear that you must and should fear. For all those who place your hope in Christ, hopefully you no longer are fearing judgment, no longer fearing wrath. And that's what the scripture this morning is helping us with, seeing that we have cause for fear. We're naked and exposed before God and we must give account to Him. But... If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we're to hold fast to the faith, hold fast to the faith that we profess in our great high priest so that we do not have fear. Remember in Hebrews 4.13, no creature is hidden from his sight. It'd be a terrifying reality if we were hoping in ourselves, wouldn't it? It'd be a common fear that we all should and, and have had at some point in time. Maybe you don't know you have it. Maybe you don't know you need the Lord. It's a fear you have, you're just unaware of. You should be afraid. It's like you're walking on the edge of a precipice. You just don't know that there's a huge drop off there. You see, we have a lot of reason to be ashamed on our own, don't we? On our own, we have much reason to be ashamed. If you are a living, breathing human, you know somewhere, some part of you, there's some part of you that has reason to be ashamed on your own. And if we stand on our own merit, we never come to the place where we trust in Jesus, you're surely going to face the punishment of death. You see, ever since Adam and Eve in the garden, ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, mankind has, has had to live with this fear of punishment and death. And you deal with that in different ways. Um, as Hebrews we heard earlier, we, we can ignore that fear of death and act like it doesn't exist and just, I want to live for today, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Or you can, you can be in constant fear of death and anxious. You can be angry. You have to face that fear in some way of being exposed before God. As Christians, we place our hope in Jesus to cover us, to clothe us in His robes of righteousness. We trust all of the merit that He's earned by living a perfect life, that God has credited that perfect merit that He earned. He's credited that to us. And so now when God sees us, He doesn't look at us with all the bad stuff we've done. It's not that He's clueless. He doesn't forget it. But He looks at us and He says, No, I'm choosing to only see them as righteous. That's the hope of Christians. That's the hope. If you place your hope in Jesus, that's what we come to the throne of grace with, that hope. We heard back in Hebrews... 2, 14 to 16, that we have it. It says, uh, through death, he might destroy. This is why Jesus came. Jesus came so that through his death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We can place our faith in Jesus, the Son of God. We never have to fear death. Or we can choose to deny Jesus as the Son of God, and we have much to fear indeed. Here, as Christians, though, we can still be tempted, can't we? Aren't you tempted? You ever tempted to be fearful, ashamed, unworthy? 
tempted to unbelief. That's what that is. When we're tempted to think that we're not worthy before God, what we're saying is that we don't believe that the righteousness of Christ has truly been credited to us, and we're tempted to unbelief. We read a scripture that says, we're naked and exposed. Oh my goodness. That could be a fearful thing. We're tempted to fear. We're tempted to unbelief. So the author of Hebrews is saying, because this is the case, in light of who Jesus is, he's our, he's our great high priest. He's not just a high priest. He's our great high priest. So we can respond in faith to him and draw near. And that's what he's saying. Respond in faith and draw near. See, when we realize that we're naked and we're exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account, there's a bunch of reactions you can have. When you read that scripture, when I read that scripture last week, there's some things that go on in our hearts. We can either try to run from God, ignore God, or somehow cover up ourselves on our own, trying to vainly hide our nakedness. And isn't that common to humanity? What was the very first thing that Adam and Eve did after they sinned? They hid. And then what did they do? They tried feebly to cover themselves. They sewed together fig leaves. They knew they they weren't worthy. They tried to cover themselves up on their own. And that's what we as humans, we have this innate tendency, temptation to try to cover ourselves with our own righteousness, to put our trust, our hope in something else other than God because we know we're guilty. And what we really need is God and His throne of grace. What we need is fellowship with God, but what we do instead is we try to, we try to hide and cover up ourselves and, and put on righteousness on our own and somehow feel better about ourselves on our own. But that didn't work for Adam and Eve. In Genesis 2.25 says, The man and his wife were both naked and when Oh, sorry, before, before they sinned, they were naked and unashamed. Afterwards, after they sinned in Genesis 3, 7, it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves. How silly is that? Okay, here's God who spoke, and everything came into existence. You think he can't see them? They knew that. But how foolish of us when we try to hide too. We try to cover up our own sin and nakedness and shame as if it doesn't exist. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? <laughs> that was for man's benefit, not God. God, God didn't, wasn't clueless as to where they were. He wanted to give him a chance to come to him, to come into his presence. He wanted to give man a chance to respond to him. He wanted man to realize that he needed to come to God's presence. And he had to do that. He had to choose to come to God. And he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I, na- I was naked and I hid myself. And, but then after the curse, we see that God covers their nakedness. In Genesis 3.21, the Lord made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. God in his mercy was giving us a foretaste of the fact that only God can really clothe us. And we must come to him to find our clothing. We must come to him to find mercy, to find grace. Then in Ezekiel 16, God was talking about his relationship with his chosen people, Israel. And he says, he says to Israel through Ezekiel, he says, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I covered your nakedness and I made my vow to you and entered a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. You see, what is it that makes us righteous and able to have covenant with God? It's His righteousness. It's His garments. It's His covering. We can't cover our own nakedness. We can't hide from Him. Adam and Eve tried that. It didn't work. Remember Jonah. He tried to run from God. What happened? God sent a bunch of storms. And then they threw him overboard. And God sends this big fish to rescue him. And to save him. Because Jonah couldn't. He was drowning on his own. 
David discovered he couldn't hide from God in Psalm 139 too. He says, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my paths. Am I lying down and are acquainted with all my ways? Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Can't hide before God. So what, what response will we have? What response do you have when you sin, when you need God? When you have a time of need, what response do you tend to? Do you respond by trying to hide and cover your own? Maybe legalism trying to cover up and act like you're not really that bad and not admit your faults? Do you respond by running from God, ignoring God, partying and acting like He doesn't exist? Or maybe do you respond in anger, blaming God? The problem is God's perfectly righteous and holy in all His ways. He's blameless. He's not to blame for our sins when we're exposed and we know that and it makes us angry because it reminds us we feel bad. We need our nakedness covered ever since Adam and Eve sinned. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned. And see what the author of Hebrews is doing is he's going back, he's looking through Scripture and he's seeing these profound truths that are throughout Scripture and we're meant to do the same thing, to make those connections. And he's saying, we need nakedness covered. And there's only one place we can find our nakedness covered. That's our great high priest. It's inherent that when we sin, we know we need covering. If you don't know that, you you should know that. You have. You just suppressed that truth at some point in time. But it's inherent to who we are created to be as worshipers of God. To be in relationship with Him. And so when we sin, we know that something's keeping us. And this isn't good. But here, the author of Hebrews is saying, as Christians, as those who place their faith in Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, the great high priest, the better apostle, the better prophet, the better king, we have hope. We have good news. We have good news. We have a great high priest. He's none other than Jesus, the Son of God. He says, He's passed through the heavens. And since we have a great high priest, what does He call us to do in the Scripture? He calls us to hold fast. Hold fast to our profession of faith. And then he calls us to draw near. Hold fast and draw near because you have a great high priest. And really that's the the main idea of the whole entire text. The entire passage this morning is, since we have a great high priest, let us, may you and I, hold fast. Not to ourselves, not to our fig leaves, our feeble covering. Hold fast to our faith in Jesus, the Son of God, and draw near. Hold fast and draw near because we have a great high priest. And the first point we're going to unpack this morning is just, it's right from Scripture, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. ESV puts it, let's hold firmly to the confession, to our confession, to the faith we profess, to to what we believe. And in Hebrews, he's been packing what we believe in is Jesus, the Son of God, the great high priest, the one who's better, more faithful than Moses, superior in every way. We aren't just told to hold firmly the faith we profess blindly. We're we're told for good reasons. And so in these verses, he tells us some of the reasons we're to hold firmly. I used to, many years ago, before I had a shoulder injury and got old, uh, I used to rock climb. And in rock climbing, we would often go to this place where you have to rappel down. 
to get to the climb. But before you do that, you set up the anchors and the protection, and then you rappel down. Well, if you're going with somebody new, um, it was a little frightening to take that first step off the edge of the cliff. They got up the edge of the cliff, and they realized, oh my goodness, now I have to really trust this thing. And, they, and, and the first step was always awkward, and people would bend back as far as they could as if they were going down that way. And that wasn't very good. And so, but we would reassure them, and we would tell them about, okay, we've got some anchors here. You have good reasons. You have a rope going through. You have a harness on. It's a figure eight. And, but, but, but with all of that, there was one thing they had to do. You see, when you're there, and you're getting ready to lean back, the rope's coming down through here. It goes behind you, and you, you have this, your hand back here holding the rope as a break. If you let go of the rope, you fall potentially to your death. So, big surprise, people were a little concerned about that. So, what we would say is, we reiterate, okay, whatever you do, hold fast to that rope. Keep hold of that rope, because if you let go, you go down the rope really quickly. Now, at the bottom, we had a person who was holding it, would pull it so that hopefully they wouldn't, you know, they'd just, they'd hurt, but they wouldn't die when they hit the bottom. But, but they were to hold fast. It was necessary to hold firm to the rope to avoid some really seriously bad consequences. There were good reasons to hold firm, though. It wasn't holding firm blindly. They could trust what we were telling them. They could trust that, yes, this would hold them if they held fast to it. That the harness, the, the, the rope, the, the double carabiners and the anchors and how, what we would do. It, there was good reason to trust that rope and to hold fast to it. There was good reason to to not let go. And the author of Hebrews has been warning us against the, the unbelief and the consequences, potentially fatal consequences of unbelief. And now he's saying, hold firm to what we professed. Hold firm to our confession. Hold firm to the faith we profess. And he gives us some very good reasons. And one of those great reasons he gives us right at the beginning, he says, since then we have a high priest, a great high priest. Since then we have a great high priest. How we can hold fast, why we should hold fast, is because we have a great high priest. Remember that. See, in the Old Covenant, the priest was given by God to be representative for the people. The priest was the one who also mediated between God and man. In his role as representative of the priest, he would make sacrifices of animals on behalf of the people. And he would make a temporary covering. A temporary atoning for the people's sins. But he couldn't actually help the people overcome sin. He could only serve in covering over their sins for a little while. And it wasn't permanent either. And in later passages in Hebrews, he's going to unpack this idea that that past sacrificial system, it wasn't sufficient. Because he had to do this year after year and priest after priest and year after year. And they couldn't help with temptations to sin either. They were just meant to serve in postponing the wrath of God. We don't have this kind of high priest anymore, what he's saying. We have a better, a great high priest. Told in Hebrews 1.3, that Jesus has made purification for sins himself. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God to show that his purification for sins was complete. It was finished. It was done. And unlike any other priest... No other priest could stop his work. Year after year, he had to do the same thing. And he was always slaughtering animals. Jesus was slaughtered himself. And he sat down. His work was complete. We saw in chapter 2 of Hebrews that Jesus has been crowned with glory and honor because he suffered the death that all of us deserve for everyone who believes in him. Not only that, it's he who sanctifies and he makes us righteous and he helps all the offspring of 
Abraham by faith. And then in Hebrews 2.17, look down your Bibles for a minute or up on the screen. And speaking of Jesus, it says, He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why? So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins. So to turn away God's wrath, the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the kind of great high priest that we have who's been made like us in every, every way. Chapter 3 tells us that that Jesus, the high priest of our confession, he was faithful to God in every way. He was made like us in every way. He made propitiation for our sins. And then he was faithful to God in every way. This is the great high priest that we have. This is how we can hold fast. Then the opening parts of chapter 4 is an exhortation to enter into God's rest through trusting in Jesus and resting in Him, resting from our own works and Resting in Jesus' finished work for us. And then in this passage, the author also gives us another reason to hold on to the rope of our faith that, that holds us to God. Is that not only is he high priest, but he's passed through the heavens. You see, all the other priests, they never passed through the heavens. They, they had a tent, and they had three different sections of this tent that they would go through the outer court, and then they go through another... Uh, another curtain and then they go through the innermost curtain and only the high priest could go through that curtain and they can only get to a, a portion of God's presence a portion of God's presence that he made available there in the Ark of the Covenant they could only get there they wouldn't, couldn't really fully encounter the fully revealed presence of God and yet Jesus it says he's not that kind of limited high priest he's a high priest who's passed through the heavens he's not just passed through tents and curtains He's not just going into where our Ark of the Covenant is, as wonderful a blessing as that was. It was still somewhat a shadow of the fully unencumbered presence of God. And so Jesus, he's the kind of high priest who's passed through the heavens. We can hope in him because he's our high priest. We can hope in him, hold on to him because he's passed through the heavens. See, heaven is a place where God's presence is it's fully manifest, not limited to a small box. And Jesus is better than the priests of old. He's passed through the heavens. And then the third reason we're told that we can hold fast to our confession. What's the other reason we see in this passage here? It says he's the son of God. So not only is he a priest, he's a priest who's, who's better than any other priest because he sat down and he's finished his work. Not only that, he's a priest who's, who's not just passed through curtains. He's passed through the curtain. He's passed through the heavens into the presence of God. And then in addition to that, he's a priest who has a close relationship with God as the heir, as the son of God. He's a great high priest. Do you see that? Do you see why we need to hold fast? How we can hold fast to our confession of hope? Because he's a high priest. He's passed through the heavens. He's the great son of God. He has unbridled access. He's not just an appointee. He's the son. Let us hold fast our confession. So at the end of chapter 4, the author of Hebrews tells us, since we have a great high priest, let us hold fast. Don't let go. If you let go, if you let the rope slip through your hands, there will be dire consequences. But we have good reason to hold on. We have good reason to hope. A great high priest, he's completely accepted by God as the son. We can have that most hope. Hold on to the faith we have in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
So how do we hold fast, though? How do we hold fast? There's a reason why last week we had that passage about Scripture. We need to be hold fast by meditating on the truth of God's Word. We hold fast to our confession in our hearts. You see, often our emotions, I don't know about you, but like Adam and Eve thought irrationally, what they really needed was God instead of hiding. That was an irrational response. Because they, they were experiencing all those emotions that well up. When we sin, we don't feel worthy, right? When you sin, you feel guilty. So don't let your hearts and your emotions be troubled by various trials and suffering. Hold fast to our confession by guarding our hearts. Hold fast to our faith by not allowing our emotions to lead us, not allowing our faith to be clouded by our feelings. Instead, go back to what we heard about last week. Go back to the truth of Scripture. That's a difficult fight, isn't it? It's a continual daily fight. I don't know about for you, but it's for me. Hold fast to our confession, not just in our hearts, but in our actions. How do your actions show where your hope is? How does what you do at work and in school and at home, how do your actions show where your hope is? Well, you see, when we obey God, when we take steps to obey God and do the things He tells us to do, that's actually us showing that we believe that His Word is true, even if we don't understand why He's telling us to do those things. And we're putting our faith and trust. We're holding fast to our confession and our actions. And then we hold fast to our confession in our speech. Let me ask you the question, what does your speech look like at work? What does your speech look like at home, at school, with people in your neighborhood? Do you, do you subtly hide who you are? Or are you holding fast to your confession? Not out of guilt or condemnation, but hold fast to your confession verbally, publicly. That's why last week we had baptisms. What a beautiful picture that was of people publicly professing, proclaiming where their hope was, was not in themselves, but in Jesus Christ and His sacrifice alone. Hold fast to our confession and our our speech. And then one of the ways that God gives us, one of the means of grace that God gives us to hold fast to our confession is actually evangelism. This is not out of condemnation, but when was the last time you, you thought about sharing the gospel, about making disciples? That's a means that God gives you to actually encourage you to build up your faith And to help you hold on to your confession by sharing what he's done. By reminding yourself as you're sharing with somebody else, what God's done is true and I'm not ashamed and I'm not embarrassed about it. And you need it too. It's a way that we can hold fast to our confession, hold fast to what we believe. And then the author of Hebrews, the second thing he encourages us to, in light of the fact that Jesus is a great high priest, hold fast and draw near. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. It's the second point. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Imagine if you lived in the time of the Roman Emperor Augustus and you were out living in one of the foreign lands that he ruled over supremely. You might be intimidated if you were brought before him, wouldn't you? Imagine this is the great Roman Empire, Caesar Augustus, and he was over everything. And you're coming from one of these outlying lands and you're being brought before him. You might, you might think about what you're doing. You might think about who you're coming in front of. You might even be a little nervous because you know that Caesar has the power to do whatever he wants. He could take your head off. He could throw you in jail. He could make you a slave. You definitely, at least potentially, would be intimidated, especially if he knew everything about you, if he knew everything you've ever done, and, and he knew all the ways you defended him. But then imagine that he had a son, 
He lived in your land and understood you and your customs. He lived in the same country as you. He, he knew you personally. And he goes there with you. He goes into the presence of Caesar Augustus with you. Imagine the son was willing to vouch for you and to take any punishment you deserved on himself. It would, it would change the way that you went into the court of the emperor, wouldn't it? You'd be thinking differently. You'd be thinking, okay, I'm, I'm okay because his son's vouching for me. Now, the, the problem with that illustration is that God is not angry with us. He's not looking to punish us. He's not looking to correct us. You see, the son is already taking care of all those areas we've offended him. And so, not only has he done that, now he comes and says, let me, let, me, let me have you meet my dad. Let me show you the source of all help and all hope. Here's, you know what, this, this is a throne of judgment for all those who don't know me, but this is a throne of grace for all who are in Christ Jesus. What throne was once intimidating now is the throne that's our biggest place of help. And God is saying, where are you? Where are, are you? Where are you? He says it to each and every one of us. Where are you? Are you trying to hide? Are you trying to run? Don't do that. You need to come to me and be clothed. You need to come to me. Find mercy. Find help. Find grace in time of need. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence because he's made complete payment for our sins. He's taken away the fear of death, the power of the devil. Even though Jesus is no longer physically here in this world, he still, he sits at the right hand of the throne of God in heaven, but he's not detached from us. You can feel at times like he's detached from us in some way. Know what the author of Hebrews is saying? No. He's experienced weakness just like you. He's not detached from the, the evil hostility of the world that we live in. He's not unfamiliar with our sufferings, our difficulties, our weaknesses, our temptations. And let me ask you, as a human, do you have weakness? Anybody here have weaknesses? I'm assuming it's more than three people. We, don't we all have weaknesses? Here's the thing. Weakness doesn't necessarily mean sin. Although weakness can often be exploited and lead to sin. It can, it can lead us to temptation. Weakness doesn't mean failure either. We're born weak. We die weak. Isn't that an uplifting thought? <laughs> you know, I, I've had, we've had five children. All of them were born helpless. And you know what? For a lot of us, we're going to... Our last wild life might be spent helpless with needing other people to care for us because we won't be able to care for ourselves. But here's our hope. Our hope's in God. You know, to be human is to be frail and to some degree weak. The very human condition, you know, we're, we're not like some animals that have armor and um, are strong and powerful. We're relatively weak of, in God's creation. We're pretty vulnerable, this pink, soft, fleshy skin. We're, we were made weak physically in one sense because we're made to depend upon Him. We're made to look to Him. We're made to see that, hey, hang on, wait a minute. You've got like this massive elephant. He's strong. He's big. I'm, I'm not like that. Um, you have this rhinoceros with this tough skin and he's impermeable and, and yet I'm not like that. I don't have this big tusk or horns or big teeth and that can rip you open, you know. <laughs> we're weak, we're frail, we're fragile. To be human is to be frail and weak. They're physical, mental, 
emotional, developmental weaknesses. You may not have thought about it much, but here's what this is saying to us. Jesus was a frail, weak human just like you and I. You kind of think, whoa, wait a minute, is that sacrilegious? No, it's actually our hope. It's our hope. You see, Jesus was born as a human. He was born weak. He was born unable to speak because his lips hadn't developed, his tongue hadn't developed, his muscles hadn't developed yet. His vocal cords were there, weren't there. He, he was weak. He was helpless. He was truly dependent on his mother as a baby. He was completely dependent. He's experienced our weakness in every way, is what the Scripture's telling us. He was just like you and me. He's not detached. He knows exactly what you're experiencing. He's lived in this frail human body. And he actually retains his human body in heaven. That's a, a mystery that we'll go into at some point later. Think about for a minute, Jesus who had only known absolute strength, absolute undiluted power, unlimited power. He, he went from that to humbling himself and experiencing the utter helplessness of being a human baby. He could neither feed or clothe himself. He limited himself. He limited his ability on our behalf to experience the full range of human weakness. He had to learn how to do things. You ever thought about that? Jesus had to learn how to do things. Especially for kids, you're, you're bemoaning or you're doing math or, or maybe for little ones you learn, you're having a hard time reading. Well, Jesus had to learn too. He was weak. He had to learn how to do things. He had to learn how to run. He may not have been the fastest kid when he raced. <laughs> you know, there's a passage that says there's, there's nothing beautiful about him to behold physically. He was weak. He was weak. Weakness doesn't imply deficiency or sin. Maybe you're weak this morning. We have, a, we have hope. We have a high priest who understands that. And then he tells us to come before the throne of grace to receive mercy and grace in time of need. You see, Jesus probably had to learn carpentry through trial and error. He probably hit his thumb. And it probably hurt. He was probably tempted to do what I've done, which is not good. So... He would have had to train his mind to learn and memorize scripture so that later he could resist the devil and say, no, God's word says. But he didn't just, he had to learn that. It was probably difficult for him. He had a whole range of weaknesses and this whole weakness word here, it includes that range from physical weakness, illness to social pressures, abuses, weaknesses of our desires and mind. And the point is that Jesus is able to help us in every weakness. You're weak. Whether you admit it or not, whether you know it or not, but I'm guessing you do. You probably know you're weak to some degree. Jesus is able to help us in every weakness. Not some. All weaknesses. Every weakness. My youngest son, Gideon, he's, he's just barely learned to walk. He falls over a lot. Um, he, he probably falls more than he walks. And when he wants something or he gets tired when he falls, he doesn't know what to do. He really just has kind of one posture. He's on the floor. He's got his little blanket. And he puts his arms up in the air and he's like, Ah, dad, dad, dad. And he's got his arms up in the air and he's... It's pitiful. And then at the same time, it's adorable. And you can't help but like snatching him up because he's just so dependent. He's like, Mama, I need you, I need you. And um, you can't resist just scooping him up and holding him and getting him what he needs. And what this is saying is that Jesus doesn't just do that. He identifies with us in our weakness. 
He sympathizes with us. He's, he's, he longs to help us. But what do we need to do? We need to have that posture, don't we? We need to come to Him, not hide from Him and say, God, I, I need You, Lord. I, I need You. I am weak and I need You. And what He's saying is we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. My little boy, he is utterly confident that we will do something about his need. We've never told him to be confident in us. We've never told him to hope in us, to look to us, to, to cry out for us, to, to place his only hope for rescue from whatever in us. But he is utterly confident. That's the kind of confidence we're called to have. That just abandon. You are my only hope and this is it. And I'm looking to you and I know you're going to give it to me because you're my dad. You love me. You're going to scoop me up. I know That's how we're supposed to approach the throne of grace, with that kind of confidence. Why? Because knowing that Jesus can sympathize with us in every way, in every respect, he was tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted to frustration. You know what? Jesus was probably tempted to be frustrated with his siblings. He had siblings. He was tempted to be frustrated with them. You guarantee. Siblings are frustrating. Anybody here ever had a frustrating sibling? Excellent. It might be you. Um, His... I bet he was tempted to frustration with his friends and indefinitely tempted with his disciples. When his disciples, you know, he was in the boat and this big storm was happening and he's just trying to get some sleep because he's tired and he's been, he's been pouring his life out and he's just sleeping and, and they're all freaking out. He's like, really? <laughs> okay, I'm not going to sit. All right, so he was perfect. He perfectly responded, but he could identify with those temptations. You know, it just based desires. He was tempted by hunger. You know, think 40 days in the wilderness. That's beyond hunger. That's beyond famine. He was likely physically at death's door from lack of nutrition because he had a human body. Now, did God sustain him supernaturally, miraculously? Yes. But he was tempted physically. It was a real temptation. It was so real that the devil said... Hey, you know what? Why don't you just use your power to turn these stones into bread? But he had a re- it wouldn't have been a real temptation if he wasn't really hungry and desperate for food. He was thirsty on the cross. I thirst. And they mocked him and brought him vinegar. He was tempted in every way like we are. He was physically prone to cravings of all kinds. He was tempted to lust. He was tempted to sinful desires. He knew temptation to look at a woman lustfully. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said that even to look at a woman lustfully was as, as if you were committing the sin of adultery. He was tempted to drunkenness. He had an ample opportunity, didn't he? He created wine. It was his first miracle at the wedding feast in Cana. He probably could have created as much as he wanted. He was tempted in every way. He's probably tempted to fear man and pride around the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Could you imagine? He would have been tempted to do what his family wanted instead of what God wanted. When they said, come on out here, you're crazy. He would have been tempted then. He would have been tempted to be lazy because he just worked so hard all the time. He would have been tempted to self-pity. We know that he was tempted to give up and to give in, to avoid suffering, but he didn't. He prayed in the garden, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass. Yet, nevertheless, thy will, not mine. He was tempted in every respect as we are, but here's how we can have complete confidence. 
He never sinned. He never gave in to sin. Some people think that because Jesus never sinned, that somehow he doesn't understand your temptation. Really? <laughs> well, is it, is it easier to give in to sin in temptation or to resist it to death? You see, it, it's easier to give in to temptation. It's much harder to endure faithful, never giving in. He knew how extremely hard it was. And could you imagine, you know, all of us have sinned in some way, given in to temptation in some way. Think about that temptation, the last temptation you had to sin, where you gave in. And think about that, how hard it was, and you felt like you couldn't stop, you couldn't, no, 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 and you just sinned. Because you, you, you couldn't, you didn't feel like you could last. Jesus never did that. That's imminently harder. Immensely harder. You can imagine how much harder it is to never, ever give in. And see, the longer we go with temptations, resisting temptations, the harder it gets in one sense. Jesus resisted in every way. He was without sin. These three important words, yet without sin. These are the source of our hope. Not only for Jesus to be the perfect substitutionary atonement for our sins before God, but these words are our hope that He really can help us. What do you want? You want somebody who always gives in to sin to help you with your sins? I don't think so. <laughs> he knows what temptation is. He knows how not to sin because He never sinned. He resisted it perfectly. He didn't sin. And He can help you. That's the kind of help He can give you. He knows exactly what you feel like. You know, if I, if I wanted to be a really great golfer or great in some other profession, I wouldn't go out and hire myself. Um, I, I shoot about 110 in golf. That's not good in case for those who don't play golf. I, the, the goal is like 70-something. and I, About 110 is where I score. I, I get more strokes out of my game, and that's good. But if I wanted to get better, I would hire somebody who was so much better than me. Maybe I'd hire Tiger Woods. He's, he's been ranked you know, off and on number one in the world for twice as long as any other golfer in history, like 623 weeks at, at the number one spot. I think uh, the closest is like 323. I don't remember who that was, Greg Norman or Mickelson or somebody like that anyway. I might settle for the number two golfer, or maybe Roy, Roy McIlroy, who's number one right now, or maybe I'd hire Bubba Watson if I wanted to have some fun, um, the redneck golfer. Um, but even the best golfer has problems with his game and won't... Um, eventually, he'll, he, he won't be perfect. He'll, he'll, in some way, make mistakes. If we want to learn how not to sin, we have the best place to go. To Jesus, who understands our weakness in every way, who is tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. He's perfect. He's not messed up. And He says, come to Me. Come to Me. Come to My throne of grace. Well, you'll find mercy and grace. Then don't we need mercy? Don't we need grace? The kind of priest we have, the kind of great high priest we have, can never be surpassed. There was no one greater. He was tempted as we are without sin. He's able to help us. He understands us. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. Not like, oh, I feel bad for you. But he gets it. You see, he submitted himself to all the same temptations and weaknesses and suffering. He, didn't, he doesn't just look at us from afar and say, I understand it, you must be suffering. I've suffered with you. And I've suffered far more than you. He can give us unlimited help. 
When friends desert you, and by the way, you may have had your friends desert you. When loved ones leave you, you may have had loved ones leave you. When relationships disappoint, when someone who's close to you fails you, when you fail you, he will not. When everyone else gets tired of you, and you may feel like that, and you feel too weak, you can hold firmly to your faith in Jesus. This is the kind of high priest that we're encouraged to come near to. In old times, it was a fearsome thing, in the Old Testament times, to come before the throne of God. In Exodus 19, we have a picture of the Lord. He descends on Mount Sinai. and says, He descended in fire. Imagine seeing that. You're the people of Israel, and looking up in this mountain, and all of a sudden, fire comes down. That would freak you out. The smoke of it, it says, went up like the smoke of a kiln. It says the whole mountain trembled greatly. And God told Moses to warn the people not to come close or they would die. <laughs> they would have been terrified. They couldn't draw near. Deuteronomy 4 it says the mountain burned with fire to the heart of heaven. So this whole mountain was burning all the way up to heaven. I had a bonfire in my backyard and I couldn't stand within about five feet of it. Could you imagine if it was burning all the way to heaven? The intensity of that experience. It says it burned all the way to the heart of heaven, wrapped in darkness and cloud and gloom. And the Lord spoke to them out of the midst of the fire. I'd be backing away from that fire, okay? You know, I've built some big bonfires before. I'm like, okay, I've got to back up a little. It's getting a little too hot for me. The other night we had some friends over and it got a little hot for my pants, so I had to back away. But you know, this is, this is intense heat. They couldn't approach God. In Leviticus 10, it, it gives us the story of the sons of Aaron, the very sons of the first high priest Aaron. They were appointed as high priest after that. And Nadab and Abihu, it says, the sons of Aaron each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense in it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out before the Lord and consumed them. And they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all the people, I will be glorified. You don't come near to me unless I invite it. You don't come near me on your own terms, on your own righteousness and your own abilities. Remember Uzzah, the story of Uzzah. He sticks out his hand. And I'm reading the story. I'm like, okay, he's sticking out his hand to catch the ark. He's being a nice guy. Boom, he dies. He thought he was worthy to touch the ark. He thought he was cleaner than the ground. King Saul offers a sacrifice instead of Samuel. God strips away his kingdom because of his arrogance. Isaiah feared for his life when he saw God in a vision and confessed that I am a man of unclean lips. Scripture tells us, in fact, in Timothy, that God dwells in inapproachable light whom no one has ever seen or can see. Now, here's the crazy thing. We are being called near. Let that affect you. All throughout the Old Testament, no one was called near. We are being called near. You and I are being called near to come to the throne, not of judgment, not of condemnation, not where you'll be burned to death, but to a throne of grace. Because why the priesthood of Jesus established real fellowship between God and his people where the old covenant was only foreshadowing a close fellowship with God. So the sovereign son of man. It says, what does what it say he did? It's a great picture. It says he became flesh. He tabernacled. He set up his presence, his tent. He, it was to give us a picture of the old tabernacle. He, he became 
one of us and lived, His presence lived amongst us. He brought the presence of God close. He touched humanity. He healed all who came to Him. He died and He's resurrected. He's at the right hand of the throne of God, constantly making intercession for us. And by His blood and through His sacrifice, He says, come near to my presence freely. Whenever you want. Nadab and Abihu, they couldn't do that. He says, come freely. Not only that, come boldly, come with confidence. Whenever you need mercy and grace. By his blood, through his sacrifice, we come freely. We should have died before, but now we can come into God's unlimited throne of grace. His throne of favor. But that doesn't feel right to us, does it? Sometimes we don't feel worthy. Sometimes we feel like God's angry with us. <laughs> Awkward pause. There's a... <laughs> Don't you love cell, tone, uh, cell phones in the middle of service? It's funny. <laughs> it's okay. Don't be embarrassed. We all do that sometimes. Um, we don't feel worthy sometimes. We feel like God's angry with us at times. Don't you feel like that sometimes? We feel weak. We, we feel aware of our nakedness. We feel ashamed. We fail. Do you ever fail? We face temptation, we give in. Sometimes we head straight to it instead of fleeing it. We defiled our bodies and our hearts and our minds. We feared man and we've lied. Maybe you find yourself somewhere in this list. We've been hypocritical and fake. We pretended instead of being truthful and straightforward. We've lusted, we've been angry, we've been jealous, we've been vindictive and bitter, resentful and petty at times. We feared man instead of fearing God. We failed to obey God in so many ways, both in sins of commission and sins of omission. We're overlooking Sometimes we feel dirty and unworthy. Like utter failures. Do you ever feel like that? Too weak to pick ourselves up off the ground. And all the scriptures written to all of us to put our hands up and say, God, help me. I can't. I need you. I need your mercy. I need your grace. I don't have hope in myself. My hope is in your sure and secure hope that you are the Son of God You've passed through the heavens. You've made a way for me to come to you. You've done away with all of my sins. And you call me to come to you. And that's really the final thing that we're going to close with this morning is let us approach the throne of grace. Why? Because we need to. What is it that we need? You need mercy. We need mercy. We need grace. We need God's merciful forgiveness for sins, for our past. We need His mercy to cover all of our past. And we need grace for tomorrow. We need grace, His favor to be able to hold on and to hang on. So we come that we may receive mercy. We come that we may find grace. We come to receive mercy and grace when in time of need. So when should we come? It says in time of need, right? So then the question is, when's our time of need? I think the better question is when is not our time of need? When is not our time of need? Maybe that's why Scripture encourages us in other places to, to pray without ceasing. Why? Encourages us to come before His throne of grace. Don't stop it. We always need to. We always need His mercy. We always need His favor and grace. We always need His help. The Scripture really eminently is a call to constant, continual, persistent prayer. 
You know, prayer is something that if I talk about, everyone here will instantly feel guilty about because none of us pray enough. But here's the thing. This is encouragement for us to pray because we need Him. Because we need His mercy and grace. Not our duty, but just, Dad, 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 I need you. We need to pray. He doesn't condemn us when we don't. No, He says, draw near. What are you doing? Draw near. He desires to pour out His mercy and His grace. And prayer is the means that which our relationship with God is sustained as well. You see, in the past, only the priests could approach the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant, you remember what was on the Ark of the Covenant? A mercy seat. We come now to the real throne, the true and lasting throne. We come to the seat of mercy. And he says, come. Come freely, come with confidence. Not in yourself, but come with confidence in me, your great high priest. Jesus, the Son of God, our great high priest, he's won for us what the people of Israel could not enjoy, immediate access to God. And, and the request for us to come near to him continually. We don't need to fear death or punishment in his presence. If you've placed your faith in him, your trust in him, if you've not, I want you to be afraid. But then I don't want you to fear anymore. I want you to come to him, to repent, to turn from your sins, to turn from trusting yourself, to turn only to trusting in him. Saying, God, I need your mercy and I need your grace. We don't need to fear death or punishment in his presence. We can come and be clothed in his righteousness. So the shame of our nakedness, as we sang about this morning, will never be seen. He can anoint our eyes so that we might see Him. And He'll give us just the right help that we need, knowing and understanding our weakness. And He's willing and able to help. Go ahead and have the band come forward for a moment. And you can go ahead and stand up, actually. Stretch your legs for a second here. Here's our encouragement, church. Here's your encouragement. Because we have a great high priest, the throne of God is a throne of grace. And we get mercy and grace from His throne to help us when we need it. We didn't deserve help. We don't deserve help on our own. But we can have it freely. You can have it right now and you can have it forever if you trust in Jesus as the Son of God, your high priest. And you can draw near to God through Him. Let's worship Him together.